A message from our sponsor, Rampstop Marine Service. Rampstop Marine Service is a family-owned and operated boat store located at mile marker 757 on the Ohio River. Since 2005, their mission has been to support and encourage the Inland Mariner by providing midstream delivery services on the Ohio River from Louisville to Cairo and the Mississippi from Hickman to Cape Girardeau. By operating their own grocery store and supply warehouse tailored to the needs of vessels operating on our inland rivers, they can provide you with what your boats and crews need to keep moving. Rampstop has also begun working with launch services and midstream fuelers on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. So next time you talk with your launch service or midstream fueler, ask if they can provide you with groceries from Rampstop Marine Service. Check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok or visit www.rampstop.com. Welcome back to Between the Levees. I am joined today by James Edwards, a pilot on the Captain Dan Thomas. It runs on the Illinois, the Ohio, some of the lower. We'll get into all that. But first of all, Captain James, thank you for joining me. Not a problem. Glad to be here. I uh, appreciate your time this afternoon. Please, as these all begin, tell me, where were you born? Born in Dothan, Alabama. It's the uh, southeast corner of Alabama, just north of Panama City, Florida. Spent a lot of time in both places. Um, that's where I've been most of my life. I've, I've moved around. I consider Panama City my home as well and uh, lived in Houston for a while and a couple other places, but uh, moved back here just a few years ago and ended up working for ACBL afterwards. What did your parents do for a living? My father's been uh, in a lot of different businesses. He actually started out in the trucking industry and uh, owning a trucking company by the time I was in high school, actually ended up working for him for a while. Um, but most recently, he's actually shifted again. He's one of those guys that's good at a little bit of everything. He, he just, you know, older in life and he wanted to, always wanted to get a commercial pilot's license. So he did. And now he flies for several different people um, professionally. And on his other hand, he was most recently the project manager for Quantic Engineering, working on some of the ships and things they were building for Eastern Shipyard. Um, I believe the most recent project he was working on were the Staten Island Ferries, actually. So I actually got to go there and watch the launch of one of those, and that was that was great. So I've always been very much around the maritime industry. Um, he came up running dive boats and everything else. He had a sailboat. Uh, so he, he had us naturally in the water at a young age. What about your mom? Mom, she, uh, she supported him quite a bit. Uh, she worked with him at the trucking company for many years and then decided that it was time to be a stay-at-home mom. Mom, I had a brother and a sister, and I think we were all a handful, so it, it worked better if she came home and definitely was a homemaker for a while. What kind of trucking business did it, was he running? Flatbeds, um, usually heavy freight flatbeds, any kind of specialty stuff. Uh, not entirely sure the whole broad range of it, but it was just about everything you could imagine you could put on a flatbed. And he, he had, it, I believe at one time, I think they were servicing 84 owner operators. It was quite a few. I think he owned a few of the trucks as well. And uh, at the economic downturn, it just kind of, it, it was harder. He was still considered a smaller trucking company. So it was, it was hard on everybody. And he just had to let that one go eventually. Well, what was life growing up in Dothan or I guess all around down there? You know, it's, um, it's not a bad place. I mean, obviously I came back, but it was, uh, I went to a little school called Rehoboth and I don't think I would have traded it for anything. You know, it, it's one of those towns. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's, um, in fact, one of the funniest things is I think a lot of the guys around here, they, they get into this mindset that it's a small town. They got to get out. They got to get out, you know, and me, now that I've traveled the United States quite a bit, at least, you know, the upper Midwest and, everywhere else in the east coast everything they dothan's not a small town i've been small towns there's a lot smaller places to be um dothan i feel like is a good balance you know it's not necessarily a destination place but it is a is a decent place everything's kind of decent living uh good people around and that's kind of why i gravitated back here for at least a little while i'm i'm the kind of guy i get bored after a few years so may end up moving somewhere else i'm not sure um, but it was, uh, it was good growing up here. You know, it, it, a lot of good memories around. We, we had enough land to get out and run around in the woods or jump down to Panama city. We'd go off 
go out on the golf, go fishing, um, and just general, whatever we could get into, we would find it. Were you drawn to anything specific in school? In school, I was uh, probably drawn away from more things than I was drawn into, but I, uh, and I was always drawing, literally. I, I mean, I was, I was probably not paying attention like I should have. I was drawing stuff on paper, whether it was, it was blueprints. I love drawing blueprints. I would draw blueprints to ships all day, um, airplanes, because I was just always around it growing up. So, you know, my, my dad had me around airplanes at a young age. We loved flying and I just, I love the idea of racing planes and um, captaining ships and racing boats and every, everything in between. So as I grew up, you know, I, I really wanted to be a pilot. And, um, you know, by the time I was in high school, it was, uh, I started to think about money more. And, and as the more I looked into it, I said, eh, you know, I don't know if being a pilot is for me right now. That was once again, you know, 2010 is the year I graduated. So it was kind of like eh, the industry wasn't doing so hot. And uh, I didn't go, you know, I had no direction really. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, if I wanted to take off to college or anything like that. And uh, I just started looking for jobs and I didn't, you know, I, I kind of just put it on hold. And I still say that, you know, I'd, I'd like to fly again, um, but I don't. Obviously, I, I wound up in the maritime industry and it's just, man, it's taken a hold of me over the last few years. Um, I ended up my first job after high school and I worked for my dad for a little while at the trucking company working in safety and that kind of stuff just basically clerical doing paperwork and answering phones and then my first real job or what I consider a job that I got myself you know with no one else's help I worked for uh, Mercury Marine in Panama City Florida and that really kicked off my maritime career tell me about that job well I was a uh, test pilot or crash test dummy if you will we uh, <laughs> we were we worked in the research and development side of things for Mercury Marine and um, endurance pilots or endurance drivers, what they would call us. We, I've probably been on over 120 different boats for Mercury, testing prototype engines, prototype systems, um, just different types of hulls, anything you can imagine we tested. I mean, I think we even, at one point, I'm pretty sure we even tested some kind of keychain to make sure it wasn't going to break. And we were the guys that gave it to at the time uh, to make sure what they're building is the product that they want to release. And sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. And uh, I was definitely the youngest there. I think I was 17 or 18 when I started there. And I actually recently just went back to my uh, facility manager who's since retired. His name is Bill Nestler. And I actually sent him an email or message on, on Facebook, I think it was. And I said, Bill, you know, I, Say, I got to go back and I got to ask you because I, I know I was the youngest guy there and uh, this really kind of set me in a direction that I never thought I was going to go in my life and it's been a great one um, why did you hire me you know and he, he said well some guys you just know <laughs> and I said okay so that's good enough for me so we've been uh, kind of talking back and forth ever since and it, it was uh, one crazy job for an 18 year old to give a, a guy you know a $1.3 million prototype boat and say, here you go, 10 hours, go break it or something. And so we'd run out in the Gulf, uh, full throttle, whatever we could do. We'd jump waves, you know, just we'd, we'd adhere to different testing principles and standards. But at the end of the day, we were just running boats to see what happens. And I mean, we'd put hundreds and hundreds of hours on these new engines and, and just uh, put them through the run, the, the tests, you know, just, there was actually even a test we had at one point to run a boat aground, basically, you know, find a shallow spot and make sure the engine kicks up like it's supposed to. A lot of different crazy stuff. And I, I had so much fun. To this day, that's still probably the best job I ever had. It The pay wasn't there, but um, the way it influenced me and the people that I had around me, honestly, the I, I did grow up with, uh, you know, strong maritime support kind of deal with my dad and my uncle um just everybody in my family loved being around the water but uh one guy that really took to me and became one of my mentors and best friends at mercury marine was captain brian rogers and you know he just kind of i stuck around him and i was stuck to him for a long time and he you know kind of explained all the superstitions and 
he ran shrimp boats in his off time and had been on several different ships and things like that. He's one of those salty old sailors you meet, you know, and, and, uh, he just kind of, kind of raised me up in that industry to begin with. And after that, it was, uh, just keep going from there. Any specific instances come to mind of a crazy, uh, test run? <laughs> yeah, there's uh, one I love to bring up on the boat all the time. And the guys know it. Uh, my crew definitely knows it because I've talked about it when we talk about man overboards. And I was actually thrown out of a boat against my will, <laughs> for sure. Uh, it was middle of winter, too, in Panama City, which is no picnic because our uh, our moisture content in the air and just the, the cold weather, it is just gets right to the bones. And uh, I was running a boat. And it, it was known for kind of chine walking on the water, you know, and as get up to a plane. But we were used to this. We've been running it for weeks. Um, and one day it was kind of gray, overcast, got a good two to three foot chop. So we're running out to uh, what we call or the West Bay area, which is typically where we could find some calmer running in between some of these little sounds and everything with a lot flatter water. But on the way there, you know, it's real, real tough and rocky. And uh, I'm running with a guy that's running quite a bit faster than me. I'm probably going about 55, 60, something like that. It's a center console. Um, I'm not sure of the engine. I know it was one of the prototypes we were testing. Uh, the hull design was uh, some kind of off-brand deal. That I'm not even sure exactly what it is. But the guy I was running with, we always ran in pairs. He's going out in front of me. He's probably two or three miles ahead of me. You know, and we usually try to stick together. But you got two boats are mismatched in speed. He's going to take off, run a couple miles, come back, kind of do loops around me. So he comes past me, keeps going, and I'm just cruising along. Um, I start to get almost like this premonition, and at least this is how I remember it. Uh, and we wore, you know, snail rated helmets. I'm wearing a float coat, you know, the uh, PFD float coats because it's wintertime. It's the only thing to keep you warm and keep you afloat. I wasn't wearing the bottoms to it. I was just having, I had jeans on and some black combat boots. And I remember just kind of looking down and something wasn't feeling right. It was starting that little bit of odd chime walk again. And uh, I reached up, grabbed the throttle, started to trim the engine down and kind of pull back at the same time. I kind of looked down at my speed, see it somewhere in the area, 55, 50 mile an hour, and then just darkness. I don't remember anything. <laughs> that happened as far as how I got to the next point in time that I was, but I remember everything just went blank. And I just, uh, I woke up underwater and I remember opening my eyes. It was very dark or just kind of a green tint and I see a little shimmer above me, you know, like, uh, and I, I remember opening my eyes and going and saying, damn, I'm late for work. <laughs> Then I floated a little closer and realized I wasn't late for work. I was underwater and it, it might be a little cold. And I popped up above the water. My helmet was gone. It was the first thing I realized, which was a weird thing to me because I, I remember strapping it on and everything. So I pop up, look around. You know, I see the boat over here. I see my helmet over here. I go, I grab my helmet and kind of use it to help me float. And I'm swimming back to this boat. And uh, I'm like, man, I said, I hope I don't get fired for this. And <laughs> so I don't know even what happened, you know, and I, I, uh, I get all the way back to the boat and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't get hurt. Like, I don't know how, but I didn't get hurt somehow. And you know, I'm trying to get back in the boat and it's just, it's just a pain. I'm starting to feel something kind of weird and looking down and I can't get back in the boat. And I look behind me and there's a blood trail in the water about 50 feet. And I'm like, that can't be good. <laughs> So I ended up climbing back in the boat eventually. My my wingman kind of makes it back to me. And he's on the phone first with our little headquarters and he's on the phone with the doctor and or the hospital. Uh, I'm kind of doing a little triage on myself in my dazed state that's starting to kind of get a little stiffer since it's as cold as it is outside and I'm still not hurting. You know, I don't know if anything's wrong with me or not. And I I see blood and I don't know where the blood's coming from. And yeah, he's on the phone and he's saying, yeah, yeah, it looks like he might have busted his lip up. And I said, oh, Dad, I got my lip. Now I'm just looking at the blood and he's like, yeah, you got it pretty good, buddy. Well, it ends up my teeth actually went through my face when the helmet came back and hit the water. So my lower lip was actually just kind of hanging on my teeth, which was, that was fun. But 
ended up he'd say oh, man just just get in my boat you know just get in my boat lay down like let's get you back to the dock and everything gets to get you some dry clothes on at least and i said no 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 i don't want to leave the boat here i don't know what's going on with it but i you know i think i can drive it back so i ended up just having him kind of plow back i'm following him behind him in his wake make it all the way back to the dock once again in this state i'm in you know i'm i'm yelling at the senior tech on the dock i'm like hey man i don't we're used to kind of turning them around and backing them in i said i don't think i can back this thing in he's like whatever dude just get here and uh pull in go to the hospital had your shattered ribs uh you know the whole lip thing going on there a little bit of a little bit of damage but wasn't terribly hurt and i ended up spending about a, a month out of work just sore laid up in bed which they uh, to their credit like so they they called checked on me almost every day my facility manager came over there for statements and also just want to hang out and talk to me like what happened <laughs> you know ended up i i don't know what the original what they actually came out with but i think it was a uh, steering cable breakage and or a slip or something that ended up kicking at the same time it was just one of those perfect storms of it chime walking the engine kicking one time and everything just going sideways and going from 55 mile an hour to zero real fast and i probably went across the water about the same just going end over end over end breaking my helmet and everything else so that's pretty wild but you know i i got to experience that and i i really appreciate that i wasn't actually hurt and i can take that experience into these man overboard talks with the guys every month well where did your career take you from there uh from there that's kind of a wild uh wild thing for uh i think i left there when i was probably 21 years old or 22 years old um i went to texas to houston texas to work at the port of houston with a company called trikin enterprises and they were contracted out under west gulf maritime association and the stipulation was i said okay well we've talked to a few of the engineers at mercury and one of the last projects i worked on at mercury was our joystick controlled systems and and that kind of stuff uh position holding and things of that nature. And they said, well, look, we're looking for guys that can come out here and teach crane operators how to use digital systems going from hydraulics. So I ended up going out there and I remember, you know, sitting down with the guys. I'm like, look, you know, I, I've never been in a crane in my life. I said, uh, I can figure it out pretty quick. I'm pretty good at that. You know, I, I operate all kinds of equipment and everything else, but I, I, you know, I'm not sure about these big shore container cranes and that type of stuff. And they said, we know, uh, we'll train you up on it and everything. And I was very, just how fortunate I was to get that opportunity and just to take that and run with it. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, I, I really hit the ground running there with those guys and they were very good to me. Um, they trained me up in every piece of equipment at the port. I mean, I can run top loaders, heavy lifts, shore side, um, shore container gantry cranes, uh, rubber tire gantry cranes. I got experience in all those things and kind of became a, an efficiency instructor. I wasn't necessarily the guy that would teach them how to do every little thing on it, but I taught them how to get faster with it and the uh, different control systems and things like that. And ended up becoming their outports operations manager for all the uh, ports outside of Port of Houston. So I would do stuff at Port of Houston as needed, but most of the time I stayed on the road, uh, went to Lake Charles, Louisiana to their port, doing a lot of things. Um, did some negotiations, you know, working with the guys out there, Port of Beaumont, uh, Corpus Christi, pretty much all over Texas and Louisiana, minus Port of New Orleans. I never worked there. I don't think West Gulf was in there. Um, I did that for a few years. I, I had to live in Houston. And while I did enjoy that, I'm one of those guys that walk around. I'm like, man, I miss Texas. I miss Houston. I miss Houston. But I still don't want to live there. It's It's just, and it's when I was home, which wasn't very often, it's just traffic and, you know, just people and just so much going on. I kind of missed the quiet of back home. So uh started looking for something else, which a lot of people thought I was out of my mind. But that was actually my first exposure to the towing industry. I mean, I remember looking at the boats uh, when I worked at Mercury, I'd be going by them, you know, I'm like, I see these unit tows running on the intercoastal. I'm like, God, I could never do that. I could never do that. Like 10 mile an hour maximum. Like I would, uh, I, I'd just fall asleep. Since then I've learned 10 mile an hour can be very fast. But <laughs> um, So I run around in Houston. Uh, one of my jobs, I was working as a third party safety rep for ISO 9000 insurance um, 
for the Houston and Texas Mooring Associations, the guy that's tied the ships off at the docks there at Port of Houston and everything. I was kind of like a liaison between uh, my company and them and their safety guy for third-party instances. And I'd, I'd go see these boats all the time. You know, I'd be tied off next to these ships that I'd be doing surveys on. And I'm like, man, I don't know anything about that industry. I, I mean, I know absolutely nothing, just zero, nothing. And then my brother actually ended up going to work for him. Um, he ended up working at ACBL. Uh, the tankerman on the Jack Odom most previously actually passed away this December or November. I'm sorry. But, um, <clears throat> and I just, I'm, I'm one of those guys, I got to take stuff apart. I don't care if I put it back together or not, but I got to take things apart and I got to look at it. And I got to see how everything works inside it. And that was just kind of me with the towing industry from that point on is, man, I, I got to know more about these guys. I know everything about ships or a lot about ships. I know a lot about, the inner workings of the longshore associations, the ports, um, just almost everything in between the maritime industry. But I had absolutely no clue about the inland industry. And it was like it was hard to get into. And which is one of the things that I'd like to see kind of change. I like it to be more accessible to people. But um, it, I just took it from there and started talking to my brother about it at the time. And he said, man, he said, honestly, he said, I haven't felt more at home at any other company than I do right here. I said, well, I could probably do that. And it was a, it was a big step down salary wise, um, leaving my job in Houston. And I, I, it was one of those things I was just, I had to keep telling myself it was going to be worth it. So, um, ended up taking me like four or five months to get hired. So all my savings were kind of burned up by the time I went up to, uh, what they call their RS one, the river seamanship one. And, uh, it, it was worth it in the end. It was a tough road for sure. Do you want to talk about what happened to your brother? Um, well, he worked there at uh, ACBL and the Jack Odom for quite a while. Uh, ended up getting injured and leaving for some time. Did quite a few other things. He ended up working um, a lot of fishing charters here out of uh, Mexico Beach, I believe. And, and he had a car accident in November and uh, passed away. But um, I'm happy he was, uh, you know, at that time, he was doing something he loved, you know, and, and like I said, we've all been in, the room, in and around the maritime industry. He was a veteran. Uh, he had come home, done Operation Iraqi Freedom, everything else. And it's kind of hard for him reintegrating. And he, he really just couldn't find the right job. And, and when he moved to ACBL, that was when he was at his happiest, I think. And then anything else from that he realizes to stay in the maritime industry and you kind of have this brotherhood and that was what he always told me he said hey look you know i i haven't felt like i've had a family since i was in the army you know and, and now i have i feel like i have a family and and I, I really like that for him so but he he did some uh a lot of charter work out of mexico beach was the last thing he was doing that was that was good you know there's a lot uh a lot of memories made there for him. And I think he really, really did enjoy that. So I'm happy that he at least found that kind of peace in his life, you know, once he moved on. Well, thank you for sharing it. I'm sorry to hear that, man. Um, yeah. Before we get into your, your, your inland industry experience, uh, I saw also on LinkedIn, your certified diver. Was that before or after? That career? was long before. I, I believe, um, and my dad had me in the water when I was like six or seven years old, teaching me how to breathe underwater. And I was in the pool, you know, he, I just remember that's probably one of my earliest memories is you got the octopus on your stages, everything you got the regulator, you know, and sitting there just looking at me and just, you know, in out, you know, teaching me how to breathe. My dad was a huge diver. So was my uncle. Um, so that's, that's what they grew up doing. And that's what me and my, my brother and I grew up doing. Um, now we, pushed our limits a little bit my brother and i we would go out and we'd find these springs uh, north florida they're just peppered all over the map you know and we'd we'd even go to uh, different farmers houses you know they've been using these springs for irrigation for 20 or 30 years and we'd ask them like hey can we go you know check out your spring and we, we'd go push ourselves into the caves a little bit which i do not advise that's that's not a smart thing to do but we were you know i, I was a teenager anyway he was probably just 20s in but uh we had a lot of fun. We we dive everywhere we could. I mean, we we had uh, a little inflatable Avon raft that our dad had bought, and we would throw our gear in this raft, 
pull it off the Jeep, have it on our shoulders. We pack it, pack it through the woods, drop it in the water, and we just go exploring, just diving, just swimming everywhere all day. But yeah, I, I've been diving all my life. Um, I recently just purchased all new gear and have not touched the water yet, but I'm looking to get started again. It's just, I'm, I'm at that point in my life where I've got so many hobbies. I gotta, I gotta push it down a little bit and see if I can get back to this one or not. <laughs> Any especially memorable experiences from a dive? They, you know, all of them have been pretty fun. I, I think I remember probably the most memorable you know, diving with my dad the first time I ever went in deep water, you know, probably 85 feet or so in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, which is relative depending on what kind of diver you are. But it was uh, one of those things. I think it, the visibility wasn't great. It's really green water. It was cold. And uh, we went down, hit the bottom. And I'm just looking at my dad, you know, I'm like, I can't see anything. I'm seeing like four or five feet in front of my face. And he's just like looking at his compass for a second, kind of looks around and just takes off yeah he takes off and i'm following him we get there there's this big uh lcac the uh, military hovercraft you know they had sunk there as an artificial reef and just seeing that pop up and there's this six foot long barracuda just swimming around there and remember him just swimming up to it and he had a spear gun he just kind of poked it in the face and it swam off you know and yeah, we spent a good little while down there just exploring the uh the lcac and swimming around and that's probably probably one of my best memories diving actually and you know it, since then it's been jumping in springs and you know prodding around the outside of these caves and taking a look at uh what i can find on the bottom whether it's sunglasses or a boat or something you know and uh then i spent a lot of time even in the marina working on a boat underwater just scraping the hull from barnacles scraping the props off and stuff like that but that's I guess one of those things I got to get back to. It's been a long time. I've been trying to work myself up to it again. I want to try and start doing some night dives, winter dives, stuff like that. Well, cool. All right. Well, fast forward. We're going to become a deckhand, I think. Stepping out of Houston. Walk me through that. So I ended up moving back to Panama City and uh, started the process of trying to get hired on with ACBL because I decided I actually gave uh, the company in Houston a six-month notice, and I don't think they believed me too much after that, and that was kind of hard leaving Houston because it was a great job, great people, great benefits, but I had to go. I didn't want to be there anymore. Um, ended up back in Panama City. I, I did my interview, or not my interview, I'm sorry, my uh, application with ACBL. I said, okay, I want to go try this out. I, I had something to prove to myself. And and what it was, you know, it wasn't so much Houston as it was I did have something to prove to myself because I I'd worked with these guys and I taught all these classes in Houston and I kind of I didn't like myself for it. I, I never wanted to be that guy that had never done anything he was teaching. You know, I, I was a, an effective teacher, but I, I didn't have the hands-on knowledge with a lot of stuff and I'd never done it as a job and I felt like I needed to do that and I felt you know the, with the inland industry me not knowing about it that's what I want to do next so I make it back and uh it takes several months for them to finally get back to me and say okay you got an interview it's in Houston Texas I said okay of course so I go to Houston um we go to this hotel I think there's like 225 applicants there and I was extremely impressed coming from a safety and training background you know how they did it and I, I can't remember the name of the guy I was sitting next to but both of us were kind of set back and confused by the way they were doing this because they said all right everybody in this one room after they make it past the initial documentation and everything and they said uh we're gonna do a reading test everybody in here is gonna test do a reading test and it was like a it was an impossible test it was like a 48 question test and they wanted you to do it in like 35, 45 seconds or something like that. So everybody's panicking, you know, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I, I can't do that. Like, oh, how am I supposed to do this? And so everybody's just, you know, color, 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 trying to do everything fast. I'm like, whatever, you know, so I just start answering questions the way I know how. And they're not hard, you know, they're typical easy math questions or um, safety questions and things like that. And, and we get through it and say, um, which I hope not I'm giving away their secrets here, but I don't know if they do this anymore or not. They say, okay, you know, time's up. I'm like, well, I mean, the guy next to each other, I guess, guess we're out, you know, like I'm not that fast and uh, come back. And they said, uh, they actually talked to me and they said, 
you've got one of the highest scores. I said, I only made it to like 16. I said, yeah, but all yours were right. <laughs> Instead, everybody else just started guessing. And that's the whole thing. They want you to think correctly. It doesn't matter how long you take. Just think about it correctly. <laughs> so make it into that. And I think actually after that, I want to say 25 people got an offer after that. We went to uh, RS1 with those 25. And I think out of those 25, 17 actually made it and uh, became deckhands. And I was one of the 17. My first boat was the uh, Tom Frazier. Yeah, I was on the motor vessel Tom Frazier. And, 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 you know, it's just a little bit of a culture shock going from all of that back to the boat. You know, I know it's a little bit more relaxing than training at the time. Um, very happy to be on a boat. You know, it's, it's an awe-inspiring thing, especially when you've never seen any of this stuff before and you didn't know anything about the industry to begin with. And I had a very good crew getting on. Looking back, you know, I, I'm so fortunate I got the crew I did. Uh, the lead man that I actually had training me, he was probably a little bit, uh, I'd say a little obsessive compulsive, but a very good man. And he uh, he had been to the Chicago Art Institute. And that was kind of the first taste of just how diverse the industry is and how these guys actually are compared to what people think of, them, you know, because, you know, I kind of heard the ship guys talk about stuff and like, ah, oh, you know, there's a bunch of criminals and prisoners out there and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, sure, there might have been, but now it's it, it's just so many different people. I mean, look at me, I'm a fish out of water for sure. And um, I'm working with this guy and he is on point. I mean, his ability to follow policy and just the things that he does and how he does them just impressed me. I mean, you know, he's uh and he's an artist. He he talked to me about uh, the videography stuff he did in school and that kind of stuff. I said, well, why didn't you want to pursue that? And he said, I just like manual labor. He said, I really like this job. I love what I do. And those people exist. And I, I, I'm just eternally thankful for them because, you know, decking, I, I didn't like, I mean, I, I had fun, but I did not want to do that for a long time. There are guys out there that like it and there's nothing wrong with that. And man, those guys are awesome. I, I mean, I, my hat's off to them because they, they work so hard and that's what they love. They love their job. They love just the, how they do things out there and they really take pride in it. And I'm, like I said, I'm very fortunate to have a crew like that and to work with a crew like that, um, you know, between him and the mate that was on board at the time, the mate, you know, he'd, he'd get up and come out, you know, he'd say, all right, let's, Let's go out on tow, you know, and let's let's go throw some lines or let's go tie some stuff off. Go out here and show me this, show me that. And that just really impressed me coming from a place where, you know, with the Longshoring Association, it's kind of like, hey, we got to force these guys to train. Well, here it's guys really he knows he's going to need me at some point in time. So he comes out there and is proactive about training his guys. And I really like that. Um after the Tom Frazier, you know, I, I really wanted to stay on that boat. I was on there with Captain Garen Sneed and the pilot at the time, I think, was Claude Clemens. And uh, just a great crew. And uh, But that's just not how it works with them. Once you do your training, you know, on a, a certain boat, you do a couple trips there, maybe. And if they have a slot open, you might stay. But a lot of times they'll push you on to the next boat. And I ended up going to the uh, Larry Weiss train with Steve Hackamack, who is, uh, I would count as one of my many mentors. He's uh outstanding captain definitely has a name for himself um and i ended up meeting Derek craig on that boat it was the mate and man when i got on that boat i did not like that guy oh i didn't like him but uh we ended up becoming best friends and we're both pilots now <laughs> i worked with him for um i think five years and, and probably probably got a little comfortable on deck you know we we just we had so much fun out there we worked on the, the strain and and just both of us had this idea. We, we had different ideas of, of getting there, but we both had this idea. We wanted to have the nicest boat out there. And we really worked hard on that. And that was a Jeff boat class uh, boat, uh, Larry Strain. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was one heck of an adventure. I mean, uh, I didn't want to stay on deck. I knew that he had been on deck for many years and he didn't want to be on deck anymore. Both of us wanted to kind of move towards the pilot house. Um, we had a couple of different captains after that and ended up, uh, I believe my original sponsor would have been Billy Joe King. And 
from there it was just uh trying to deck and steer at the same time i believe he and i both kind of came up when you know there were no steersman programs at the time so we decked and we steered and decked and steered and did some more you know lacked a lot of sleep but we made it and uh it was a good time though you know it, it was great and i ended up lucking out with the uh, captain dan thomas which was formerly the wt Teuton, which was named after commander william Teuton that actually designed the jeff boat class and got on there with captain danny thomas himself and he and i kind of hit it off in the first week of me riding over there and i said you know captain think i could maybe come over here and ride with you and ended up riding with him for a while and really just got along great in the wheelhouse you know ended up he he's from weewahitchka florida which i didn't know anyone else in the industry could possibly know where that is let alone be from there and he lives in tennessee now but he's been my partner ever since i mean we've been really close and you know he's like family to me so i'm just extremely fortunate and extremely happy to be where i'm at now when did they rename the boat after the man running it? Um, I want to say it was about a year ago. It would have been his, uh, I, I could be completely wrong on that time, but I, I want to say it was his 45th year with the company. They decided to rename it the Captain Dan Thomas, and it, it took him completely by surprise because Danny had always told me, he said, you know, he said, I don't, he said, uh, one of his buddies, he said, one of his buddies was always on about getting a boat named after him, getting a boat named after him. He said, I don't really, you know, I they can do it fine if not whatever you know i don't really care i don't need a boat named after me he's just one of those guys and they they called him after this kind of a rocky trip we had and he said uh he said they they called him out and said we want to have dinner with you you know and all that kind of stuff he said oh god he said, they're going they're going to try and resign me or something you know and i said well how would you feel about riding on a boat that you're named after and he said really <laughs> so that was about a year ago. We're we're still getting our name worked out. I think we haven't even put the front name on it. We had trouble getting that last decal, but it is officially now the the Captain Dan Thomas and named after a, a great individual. I mean, he's he's a great captain. He's been a great person. Like I said, he's like family to me. Um very happy to be able to work with him. I think he's on his his 47th year now, actually. So it it was a little while ago. But he wants to make it to 50, I think, at least. So we're hoping for that and just just glad to be there. Absolutely. Before we get into uh, some stories behind the sticks, walk back to where it began. Tell me about RS1 and, and deckhand training. <clears throat> so, you know, it's gone through some changes since. So I'm not sure what it's like now. But at the time, um, it had us come up to... Jeffersonville, Indiana, and I went into a hotel, um, actually roomed with a guy that was a former Marine, and uh, from there, we went into kind of classroom stuff for the first week. We went through that. It was uh, very militant, and I appreciated that. It was very disciplined. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you were expected to act a certain way, and if you didn't act that certain way, you went home. And like I said, from the way that I trained and the people that I trained in Houston, I, I really appreciated that. I mean, it was very professional. Uh, it was very safety focused, which naturally everything today is and as it should be. Um, first week, we go into this classroom, you know, they explain the rules to us. Actually, I remember walking in the hotel that night, you know, and I, uh, I think he's since retired, but uh, Frank, one of the port mates, he walks in and we're all looking like, oh man, they got a nice bar in here and everything else. He said, he walks in just completely straight face, goes, if I catch any one of you with alcohol, you're fired immediately. <laughs> so, so that was off the table for then. But uh, we went in and uh, a lot of a lot of memorization, a lot of just repetition. We do our uh, briefings, you know, how you brief on a ship or a boat or anything else. You know, we tell everybody where the fire extinguishers, fire uh, first aid, AED, all that kind of stuff is. You got to memorize the building, the floors, and where the exits are, where the passageways are. Uh, all your three points of contact, that kind of stuff, and. It was just, it was some kind of experience. Now, the second week, we went on to Cairo, Illinois, and the infamous Cairo fleet. And my hat is off of those guys. I've worked with them many times. Uh, you know, they, they get a 
they everybody talks oh care of this care of that and those guys work hard and the ones that show up and do the job it's that is a hell of a job to manage that fleet and run that fleet that's a lot of barges moving in and out every day a lot of toes moving in and out but we uh you know we go there we're completely lost or most of us I think there's a couple of guys that has some experience uh working on the pad and trying to line out how we need to wire by CBL standards and and what to do and what not to do packing rigging that's a favorite you know make sure everybody can physically do the job you you got to pack some rigging and uh you'll be packing that rigging for a long way and it's it's a painful thing i think my shoulders bled that first week second week uh in fact that former marine buddy of mine he uh he was about I felt like he was twice my size, but he old oil industry guy too is where he just came from. And he would reach over and just kind of grab it, pull it back up on my shoulder with one hand and be like, keep going. I'm like, yep, yep. <laughs> so from there we go out, we work in the fleets uh, with the port mates, uh, supervision, everything, and kind of get a good orientation of how things work. And it, you could say that, but it, you know it's over time you you learn this kind of stuff but that first few weeks it's just like i don't know what's going on i this wires going everywhere and everything you might learn to lay a proper fore and aft or maybe abreast here and there but you don't really learn until you're on the boats and i think that's what they've kind of decided recently is they learn more on the boats and i think they've shortened that training time which i don't don't necessarily know if that was a good thing or not but it it takes a while to make a good deckhand. I'd say at least maybe a year and a half, unless you got someone that's just a real, someone that really hits the ground running. But even me, you know, I, I consider myself able to learn pretty well and I didn't, didn't pick it up as fast as I thought I would. It's a heck of a job. For the sake of the folks that don't know anything about our industry that might be watching this, uh, explain to me, I guess, or to them, uh, details on rigging, how long you're, you're dragging it, how much each each type of it weighs and i guess all that kind of stuff oh man it's uh spent at least a couple of years since i've been on deck but you never forget i think it's uh <clears throat> i'd say a portable wire probably weighs what about maybe 60 pounds 70 pounds and that's that's the one i hate carrying i'll carry a ratchet all day long don't make me carry a wire but i think that's how a lot of people still feel because <laughs> the wire it's uh maybe uh three quarter inch cable steel cable and it's just digging into your arm that whole time you know you're trying to carry it and it's just loaded up with grease and oh i still hate watching guys do that you know if you don't have one that's rolled up tight enough those those are the worst because it's just hitting your leg the whole time just leaving blisters on your legs and man it it was a it was a rough thing you know in, in training they'd make you do laps with them and you just walk I don't know how far you do 20, 30 laps or something in a little short course, but it didn't matter how long it was. It, it was just painful. And I think they, uh, they really try to prepare you for what you might have to deal with out there. Thankfully, I never actually ran into in my career on deck, very short career, I would say, but where I really had to pack rigging as much as that, but, uh, I have had to pack rigging and I think it, it was a good thing to teach me not to be scared to pack rigging. You know, I think uh, you make it through even that little short training period. It's like, well, you know, I've packed rigging that long. I can, you know, pack it from the stern to the head of toe if I've got to, or, or whatever else. Um, and you've got portable ratchets, portable ratchets. I don't know, maybe 45 to 60 pounds somewhere in there. I could be completely wrong. Not like the old steamboat ratchets and the hundreds of pounds and everything else, but they're not fun, but at least you got something to kind of brace on when you carry them. And uh, straps, never like carrying straps, especially the way you got to, because they don't want you to drag anything. We don't drag anything. You know, you, you got to pick it all up. So you got to carry the link and the uh, wire in your hand. And it's just not a not a comfortable feeling, but you got to have at least two to balance yourself out to do it. So as a pilot, I try to make sure that my guys don't have to pack rigging as much as possible. I know someone's laughing right now by listening to that, but I try. Believe me, I try. <laughs> I hate watching those guys do more work than they have to. Um, that's a lot of work, and I don't think those guys get enough thankful. You know, just no one thanks them enough for what they do, and I, I, I definitely don't, but I try to every time I get the chance, and uh, just want to make sure they know that it's it's a tough job for sure. Yeah, you know, and, and that's one of the things I 
when I first met Derek Craig, who was one of my best friends out there, like I said, he's a pilot on the Tony Espinosa now. Um, always talk about that, and he, he'd sit around and be like, man, it's not a hard job, you know? It's not a hard job. I'm like, man, it, but it, it, from the outside looking in, it's a hard job. And what those guys do on deck is is just impressive still to me now. And I and like I said, these guys that are out there for decades, I don't think I can do it. I mean, it's it's just so impressive that they can do that for that long. You tell me beforehand, you're running 15 bars toes now. So typically, what we'll do lately, now we're in the utility fleet. The utility fleet is kind of a we do what they need it, when they need it, where they need it kind of thing. Um, now, I can run most anything with the exception of the lower Mississippi southbound. I have done it. I'm just not familiar enough to try and do it alone, so I'd still ask for someone to ride with me. Um, I don't really care for the lower so much. I know this is completely opposite of what some people say, but I, I find the lower boring. I love it. You know, southbound, exciting, absolutely. Northbound. It's a, it's just a grind with these six thousands. You know, it's, it's just a long way, and it's two to three mile an hour trying to find the slack water, running over what bars you can. I just, I can't stand it. I need something different. So I like the Illinois River, and that feels weird to say because that is the weirdest, weirdest thing now. But I, I do like the Illinois. Um, we'll run fifteen up the Illinois, but typically out of Cairo, we'll pick up a tow of maybe 20, 25, sometimes thirty, depending. You know, empties loads, that kind of thing. We mix tows. Um, we're just whatever they, whenever they need it, we'll go up the upper St. Louis. We'll do a lot of different tow work, all the different fleets. Come out of there with 15 or 16 and uh, going up into the chain of rocks, go up through there and head on up the Illinois. Um, Illinois, a lot of people will tell you, is a 12 barge river. And I, I can see that for sure. I, I've just gotten to the point where I, I'm not going to say I feel comfortable because as soon as you say you feel comfortable with something out there, the river's going to slap you right in the face. And it almost has many times. And I think it's just to keep you honest. But I feel comfortable with 15 at the moment, northbound at least up there. And I can take 15 south all right as well. I've, I've learned to, I've learned I don't have to steer everything. I learned I can back up and, and take my time with stuff. Um, I love the upper. I've, now the upper Mississippi proper, you know, all the way up to St. Paul and everything. I, I can't run as a pilot. I haven't been posted there. I wouldn't mind it. I, I decked up there. That was one of those horror story rivers. We're like, oh, you don't you don't want to go up the upper. You don't want to go up the upper. There's so many locks and everything else. Man, I had a great crew. I rode on the uh, Brad Bennick up there, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's just a beautiful river. Um, and with a good crew, those locks, they don't take any time. I mean, it's just it's like a minor inconvenience every, every watch or every other watch. I love the upper from St. Louis to Cairo, southbound and northbound. It's a kind of like the Illinois to me. I mean, I, that's how I run the Illinois now. And it's just, uh, it's just highly technical. As long as you're in the right place at the right time, you're going to make a steer. You're going to make, you know, whatever you want to flank. It's just all about timing and learning the river. Um, and once again, like I said, I'm, I'm nowhere near an expert. I'm nowhere near one of these guys, but as soon as you feel like you've learned it all, I think the river's ready to slap you in the face and let you know you haven't uh even this last trip you know i came down through uh chain of rocks canal and when things don't happen and you expect them to happen that's that's when i mess up the most <laughs> i come out of chain of rocks canal and come down on uh, merchants and mckinley bridge the draft wasn't where it normally was for me and it it just it had been quite a few trips since i've had one of those moments where you know, you get the cold sweats and you start praying to whatever deity's close enough. And, and it was, it was very close to that. And I come out smelling like a rose and just right on the sail line, beautiful and everything else. But you know, when the radios get quiet and everything, you know, <laughs> you know somebody's messing up. That's always embarrassing, but it's, uh, keeps you humble. And I, I love that. I love the, just the different things like that. Cause if I, you know, now that I know how to get myself out of trouble, um, because it's still a learning thing that I've only been a pilot for a few years now. And it's, um, it's been a process. How long have you had your license? Uh, 
I want to say, man, it's been, uh, I've, I've had a pilot's license, mate pilot, since I think April of 2021, maybe? Not entirely sure. I know I've been, uh, boy, you'd have to ask me that one. The dates and everything, it, always, it just blends into one lately. Um, In any case, it's it's a first issue, huh? Yeah, it's the first issue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, going. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, before we started recording that you've run the length of the Ohio all the way to Pittsburgh. Um, tell me what you can about that trip. Well, yeah, I don't remember much about the upper end. I don't get to run up there so often. We run, um, you know, we typically get up to Cincinnati at least, and then we'll we'll move on up to, uh, you know, we have the Georgetown fleets, and that's that's a typical run. That's the run everybody wishes for. They want Georgetown. That's a long run. I love the Ohio most of the time. Um, usually when they send us up there, it's because there's high water. And if there's high water, that's when they want the horsepower up there. So they'll they'll send us on up. And uh, it all kind of runs into one sometimes. Sometimes well, and the Ohio can be kind of a grind in itself, kind of like the lower. But I do enjoy it because you, you've got longer amount of time between tow work than you do like on the Illinois or the upper. And it gives the guys a chance to actually get the boat cleaned up and get things comfortable. And it's beautiful up there. I mean, you get to see everything. Uh, of course, we move on up to uh, Louisville and make those Louisville bridges and that kind of stuff. You got the uh, L&I Railroad Bridge. That, that was one of those bridges. I believe it's a Truman Hobbs Act bridge that is uh, considered kind of little crazy you know you, you go into that canal and you've got the long seawall and it's very narrow and that was one of those things I was kind of nervous about beginning in my career and the first couple of times I made it I'm like that was isn't as scary as I thought it was you know and so I always enjoy kind of revisiting those areas going up to Louisville city front moving on up the river and just having those long stretches where I can actually just steer a boat not have to listen to the radio not have to talk to traffic so much and it's just it's just enjoyable. It's a good break to me from a lot of different things. You know, southbound and high water can be a different story in some areas, but it's um, generally pretty tame on up. You know, it gets a little narrow, but uh, I really enjoyed it up there. And of course, we always use uh, well, we use Wootens and and Ramp Stop, um, Ramp Stop more often than not. And I, I believe Ramp Stop just delivered to us on the Illinois as well. They've, they've been a great company, and most recently they. Uh, actually recognized my cook and made her the uh the cook of the month i think it was they were doing for a while or something like that and and that was great for her oh my god she she almost cried you know it was great it was uh i did a recipe of hers and everything put it in her calendar um but yeah it's uh it's a it's a good break for us from some of that upper and illinois stuff that it just if you st we spend too much time in one place, it just kind of becomes a grind and you just get tired of it really fast. I mean, the burnout on some of those rivers is just incredible for some things, you know, just the back and forth, back and forth. And for the crew too, I'm constantly do tow work and that kind of stuff. Well, I've got one last question written down. So we'll see where this, de what, what develops here. But um, you mentioned earlier that you wished back then that, the inland marine in industry was possibly more accessible than it appeared to be at the time or appears to have, have you seen improvements over the years? I have seen improvements. Um, that's one of the things that I'd like to kind of get into doing, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. I think um, the industry itself is a little bit behind compared to the rest of the maritime industry. And a lot of these guys, like I said, they don't give themselves enough credit for what they do. Um, I think recruiting needs to change. Uh, that's a conversation I've had with a lot of people because myself and this other pilot I was talking about earlier, we, we get on the phone almost every night, you know, we're talking about like, man, what's going on? Like, why, where is everybody? <laughs> and it's a cultural thing. It's a corporate culture and just community culture. And I'm so glad for American waterways and, uh, all the the new things that are popping up, like Kenny Brown's uh, Maritime Throwdown. Um, I believe it was, uh, was it Gerald East talking about his app that he's coming out with. 
love that. And I listened to that the other day, man. I love, love that idea. That's great. Just kind of coming into the modern times with this stuff and uh, just something to attract the public to it. Now, I understand the other point of view where we don't want that much attention, but you know, I think a lot of these guys don't understand how sensitive and how just easy the Jones Act is to kind of disrupt. And that's what really allows us to exist. And if we let that go, or we let people, you know, if they don't know about us, what are they going to do for us? You know, it's a thankless job already, and that's fine. Nobody out here is asking for thanks, but we need some kind of recognition to keep us around. And I think if we really focus on building a community and a culture outside of the industry, I'm not just talking about one inside the industry, there's a lot of stuff that does that, but actually, you know, educating the public on what we do, talking about what we do, and just really emphasizing the importance of what we do, we would get more people. We're presenting a challenge to people. You know, I know a lot of guys want to talk about, well, we got to up pay, we got to up pay. And yeah, pay is a thing. It's not something I'm I'm willing to get into on pay. Um, I have a lot of my own opinions as well, but pay is something. But the other thing is building a culture. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's built on just culture. If you think of like the, uh, you know, like the micro brewing industry for it, it like boomed overnight and it became like a thing to do. Well, you could do that with towing industry. <laughs> I mean, it's the same concept. You make something cool or you make something, you know, open to the community, something that everybody can get into. We would not have these shortages, I would think. And uh, yeah, it's got to be done carefully. Uh, it's something we all got to work together on and kind of develop these programs to talk to people and and just get something going, you know, and talk to the kids at school. I mean, why, why do we not have recruiting teams in school talking to the kids about what's going on in the river and, and why it's so important? Because it's it's so unique. Um, there's, I mean, there are countries all over the world that have some form of towing industry, but not on the scale that we have it. I mean, the amount of rivers that we have, the amount of cargo that we move inland is just staggering. It, it's incredible what we can do with our inland industry. And, you know, like I said, these guys, they, they just, they don't give themselves enough credit. And I think that's becoming a little bit of a cultural problem. And I really hope that people start to recognize what's actually going on inside the United States, as opposed to just everything else around us, um, which I know we've started to get some publicity uh, in Louisville, not for good reasons, but mostly due to that, uh, you know, just media overblowing things with the incident in Louisville and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I really hope we we start to kind of go in a direction where we can open up a little bit more to the public, let them know we exist, let them know we're an opportunity, we can do things for you in your life. It's not a last resort kind of job. It's a just an opportunistic, very, very open world. I mean, you can go anywhere. Uh, I never thought I was going to be a towboat pilot when I was 16 years old or something, thinking about what I wanted to do for a living. But, you know, if someone came along and I was in high school and said, hey, here's this job, it, it pays great. You're going to have a lot of freedom. You're going to have a lot of time off. You're going to meet great people. And you're honestly just going to love it, you know, after a little bit of time. I probably would have considered that before I went to a lot of other things. I'm very thankful for the experiences I've had. But I would like to see people open those options up to youth and just the general public and not, you know, we, we seem to target um, just career fields and, and target demographics of people that are already working. And that's okay. I understand wanting to get skilled labor, but for instance, I've on my boat uh, recently promoted two guys off there, uh, Jared and Alex, and, and these guys were, and they were outstanding. I mean, you know, a lot of people want to blame new generations and, and talk about, well, the kids these days kind of thing. And I, I really don't subscribe to that. I get it. Uh, but like Jared, you know, I think he was um, 18 when he got on the boat and this kid, he was, he hit the ground running. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew where he wanted to go. And I said, just go for it, dude. And don't let anybody ever tell you no. And I think he just became one of our youngest engineers um, recently. I, I know he was in the engineering program, but I want to say he's, he's 21 now, but both of them had just shown great potential. And I think there's a little bit of trouble in our industry without, with not recognizing potential. And once you can get leadership that can recognize potential and push those guys ahead, 
are going to make some cultural changes and you need to show that to the public like hey look at these guys that are coming in the industry look at where they were look at where they're going now and you know it's a huge opportunity and it's not going anywhere for now i mean unless the rivers dry up or something like that which can always happen for a little bit of time but not likely you know it's uh this industry has to exist for the country to exist it's why we are as big and huge and successful as we are we have this ability to move this amount of cargo in bulk on our inland waterways i mean that just it, it has to be stated that that's just how it is and no one knows we exist so have you heard of the riverworks discovery program yes i have um i've talked to them a couple of times like i said i, I love what they do um so glad that's a step in the right direction there's you know several museums and everything that work with them um i, I believe uh i want to say I actually covered a few things i knew of but they they're doing a great job out there i'd like to see that expanded um lots more community outreach is needed all over the world you know and i know everybody just kind of does what they can but yeah they're great you know i really appreciate what they're doing if you can because i'm not familiar what did happen in louisville well, there was a uh kind of a breakaway i don't i never saw the actual incident report i believe it was a uh ingram contracted boat came down and went sideways kind of hit the uh point or something broke up hit barges hit the lni bridge barges hit the dam um and i say that was overblown because it it, it happens a lot in the high water season it's not a, a rare thing you know i was just kind of looking at the facebook comments and the groups and stuff and saying like oh the government's plan and all that kind of stuff or you know everybody has their own opinions on on why it happened I'm like man this poor guy like this wouldn't have been covered like it was unless it was uh you know they had that train derailment in ohio and everything well all, all of a sudden the media had to focus on all the bad of what's going on with with transportation of cargo so then they focus on this poor guy and we're no strangers to towboat incidents. I mean, it happens. Unfortunately, it does it every now and then. And it happens to all of us. You know, I'm not under the impression that it won't happen to me one day or or somebody I know. And uh, it was just an unfortunate day for him. Um, it ended up okay. You know, they were able to get the, the methanol barge off the dam, I believe, and get everything under control. But it does happen. I want to say that probably happens two or three times a year in those bridges. It's a... Uh, it's a place where thankful to have some of the senior experience that I've had, um, you know, guys tell me, Hey, run these bridges. Like it's high water all the time, you know, run them a certain way. Um, don't play with them, get through them kind of deal. Now, like I said, I'm not sure what happened in that guy's case or anything. I, I, I really wouldn't want to comment on that. It's uh, it's a big pain for any pilot to have an incident. And typically the hardest on that pilot is himself, including, you know, me, it's, I think that's one of the best worst traits of being a pilot is when you have an accident, you're hard on yourself more than anybody else can be. So no one else really gets on to you about it. And no one really tries to comment about incidents because they just, they weren't there and they know how hard it is for someone that takes themselves seriously as a pilot um, to come back from those. Before we wrap this up, man, anything else you'd like to share? Um, not that I can think of, uh, it's been a good time. Maybe we'll come back sometime. Uh, there's always something going on on the river, so I'm sure we won't run out of stuff to talk about. Like I said, I hope that uh, everything goes well with this podcast, and I hope that it continues to get popular. And uh, I just want people to see what goes on in this industry, and, and that there are people out here that are not what you would think they are. It's just a it's just such a diverse industry. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed my time here and I, I hope that if you have ever considered it, if anybody listening to this that just doesn't know if they want to try it out or not, sounds hard, sounds whatever, just do it. Just do it. You know, <laughs> just, just come out, check it out. It's the worst could happen. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's done exceptionally well for me uh, I, with ACBL. They've, they've treated me exceptionally well. I, I couldn't be happier for who I work for. They've been just great to me, especially with the uh, the new guys in now. They're they're awesome. Even with Mark Noy, I you know I watched the show with him last time. 
I've spoken to him personally several times and you know, I've never had so many just consecutive good experiences with a company as I've had where I'm at now. And that goes throughout the industry. I mean, you really get the sense that other people care about you in this industry. Um, just like Captain Danny Thomas kind of taking me in as a steersman. Uh, that goes a long way. It goes a very, very long way. And this industry was built on reputation. I hope that I'm developing a good reputation. And uh, I've always tried to be crew positive and just take care of my guys and everything. And I, I want that to continue in this industry, no matter how our culture changes or no matter what kind of public interest we get. I hope that we keep the traditions that we have and just expand them into better opportunities to just be good to each other. I mean, it, it's been a, a heck of a ride and can't wait to see where it goes from here. You think we can get Captain Danny on here? I bet he would love to be on here. <laughs> well, you know yeah. how to reach me. See if you can line that up. Okay, will do. Look, I thank you for being a part of this, and I thank you for your time today. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. We'll keep in touch, man. Roger that.